nice to meet you Bailey thank you for coming out to the podcast um if you if you're watching this podcast right now you should probably watch her TED talk before you listen to this I'll put the link in the description but just to sort of start off um I think that social media just it plays a really big part in all of our lives today and especially because we're all at home because of this pandemic um you know what how do you identify if it's having like a negative effect on your life well it's funny that you start with that um identifying if it has a negative uh, effect first it should just be figuring out if it is a positive or negative effect on your life and for some people uh, like myself i do have the conversation with myself in a, in a weird way reflecting on my own social media use but for the most part these days it's actually pretty positive so I would say that in my five steps towards safe social, step one is building awareness and understanding. And that's kind of twofold. It means, do you understand the risks of using, the potential benefits of using social media? Um, and then the second part is, do you understand, yeah, that relationship with yourself and how it's affecting you? And you can do, there's lots on our website, safesocialmedia.co, but just some of the things that you can do are even thinking about you know, when I go through five photos on Instagram, you know, let's just start there. Did, did I actually read them? Did I actually look at them? Did I leave with anything positive? Even start with two photos because the mindfulness is kind of tricky for some folks. So start with two and just be like, do I know the poster? Did I leave learning something inspired? Did I laugh? Because entertainment is also a positive outcome. And if you didn't, then, then I would say that it'd be net negative for you. So, um, how do you like, is there sort of a, a gauge for like, if you're sort of spending too much time on it, like, should you have sort of like the set limit that you propose each day? I think like any risky behavior, there should be some kind of set limit, a risky behavior being, um, just something in psychology where when you participate, you expose yourself to potential harm. And we know for sure now that you expose yourself to potential harm on social media, like stress, seeing traumatic imagery. You could be uh, anything, comparing yourself, envy, <laughs> could be harassment. Like it gets, it gets bad and there's many of them. So we know it's a risky behavior. So for setting a limit, like other risky behaviors like sex or drugs or alcohol would be kind of different for everybody, you know? And so it's up to you to figure out about yourself is my use however long I'm using it? Is it starting to frustrate me that I haven't worked on other things that I wanted to work on? And I'm annoyed at myself that I spent so much time on social media? Um, am I frustrated that I've been trying to work on this school project or work or have my friends and family who I actually want to spend time with, have they been frustrated with me that I'm using social media in front of them and I'm distracted in conversation? Or am I just realizing that every time I leave social media, I feel worse about myself or I feel worse about the world and I see too much negativity and, and, and traumatic imagery. So then if pending those answers, like if it's starting to do those things in your life, then maybe you need to limit your use a bit more strictly. Whereas though I, I obviously practice what I preach, um, you know, I will think I rarely leave social media these days because I practice safe social 
thinking like I spent too much time there this week because I also know that for me and my kind of work, I need to be on social media as part of personal branding, marketing and company marketing. So if I immediately see, let's even say it said an hour to three hours a day, I know that that's not solely me and just rolling and being frustrated and not really doing anything productive. There's also productivity happening in that time. So it's more just as the, for, for an individual, um, are your experiences leaving you with a net negative feeling? Are they impacting your IRL in a way that you don't like? And if they are, then you probably need to reduce your use. And you talked about impacting your, your real life. Um, do you feel like for some people is also just like, uh, not wanting to, like, like fill their gaps in their boredom, like, because, like, most people, like, before a class or in the subway or waiting in line, they're, they're on their phone, but they're not really doing anything. They're just kind of just scrolling through an endless feed. Yeah, and um, I, I would say that we, we do probably need to rid ourselves of the mindlessness of social media. Um, anyone, like, if, for example, if you spent an hour on Instagram and you don't remember what you looked at, that would be certainly mindlessness, but it would also be a sign of addiction, just like any other risky behavior, if that happens frequently, where you literally black out. Um, the other thing is that in entertainment in and of itself, I don't think is a bad thing. So if I have half an hour and I feel like watching TikTok, I don't know why that is worse than watching half an hour of reality television. If you're being entertained, though, that's the key ingredient. If I'm there and I'm laughing. Like for me, TikTok I find enjoyable. <laughs> I see like cooking videos, I see renovation videos, dancing. I find it like entertaining <laughs> and I laugh and I think it's cool. Whereas if I were um, taking that entertainment time that someone else might use to watch a TV show and I was making my life worse by comparing myself and let's say that made you feel worse on social media, then that would not be a good use of that time. But what I will not say is that entertainment is inherently bad and curing your boredom. Like, Although I, to some degree, I think people should be bored more often. There's some cool things that come out of boredom. <laughs> what do you think about like uh, young people that use social media? And like, what do you think would be a good age to sort of start or, or be sort of like if you're having kids, like what would be a good age to sort of start to allow them to sort of explore online. I know it's kind of funny because I always go back and forth in my head with this question, because if it's like a risky behavior, it, it is, it is up to like sex or drugs or alcohol. We do put some power into the hands of the government and other socializing agents like parents and educators to give some indication about when they think this is best. So on that side of the equation, I think in a in a in a like blue sky world, I don't think that a brain should do this until they're 25. <laughs> like if you really want like best optimal outcome, knowing that's not going to happen, I'd say like I gosh, ideally, ideally 16, 18, but again, even if it's not going to happen because I know teenagers, like 14. What I'm seeing now though is people getting on um as young as grade three, which is actually nine years old here. So um, on that side of the equation, it's like, God, if you really want a number, I will try to give you a number. But on the other, on the other side of the equation, it's like parents know their kids. And I can tell you just through the teenagers that I've worked with, 
Some of them are a hell of a lot more confident, self-assured, resilient. They have discipline in other areas of their life. Um, I would trust you much more on social media earlier than some of the 30-year-olds I know because you are presenting signs of the skills you need to be healthy on social media, even at a young age. So I feel like that would be more important. Like, let's be honest, with, with alcohol, the legal age in Toronto is 19, but of course I was having a drink with my parents before 19. Will every teenager be able to do that? No, but they look at their kid and they, they have conversations about safety and risk and there's a very big difference between having a drink responsibly with your parents and then not or just like letting them go figure it out and there's there's a fine line so you know your kid if they if they're showing signs of like resilience self-assuredness self-confidence discipline in other areas of their life and like something bad happens here because you understand the risks that they're not going to be thrown off for the rest of the year then then you could probably let them on sooner yeah, I'm kind of in a. Oh, sorry. You, I'm kind of in a weird position because when I grew up through primary and middle school, social media was kind of like it was MySpace or it Facebook. It was kind of only on computers. It's like no one in class really had like yeah. a device, or if they did have like an iPod, it would be to play like Subway Surfers or some other game. Um, and then it really started to take off in high school and. I think maybe because of not being exposed to that at a young age, I never really got sort of the more like um, wanting, like feeling left out or, or those other sort of effects. Do you think that social media, it's just easier for people to be negative on as opposed to in real life? Yeah, certainly. It's definitely easier to be negative or to bully others when you don't have to feel empathically the repercussions of your words as you would have to in person. Um, so it's actually even they suggest a part of the brain that that empathic response is hard coded in the brain. Um, so if you're not actually seeing the results of the pain you've inflicted, it actually is a little bit different of an effect on the brain. So there's actually, I think, research to support support what you're suggesting as well. And then and you kind of mentioned it here, but even with te- like for when we started on social media, yeah, it was tied to a computer and it wasn't, we all weren't walking around with mobile phones. And that was also in part because mobile phones were more expensive and they were not widely available yet. And just technology has progressed. And so now it's almost even like a safety thing for parents. They can't even imagine not being able to contact their 13 year old if they needed to. And so the, the, the one thing we need to keep in mind, though, is that then for every parent or educator or caregiver, if you are giving your kid access to a risky behavior like social media, it is still your responsibility to make sure that they can do it safely, that you've prepared them to handle this space, that you understand that a teenager's brain is more at risk, as in it also has less of a uh, risk tolerance. Literally the risk part of our brain that deduces risk and has fear is is actually reduced in the teenage brain. That's why they think that they're invincible in some ways, it's biological. And so that also transfers over to any other risky behavior. Like this is not gonna happen to me and this won't affect me and my mind is strong. Well, you're a teenager might not want to hear this, but the brain is literally not done growing until they're 25. And that's why I gave that number. But 
it's not done growing, which means you can't even possibly be your most self-actualized self. You can't possibly be your most self-assured self when your brain isn't even done growing. <laughs> like, like it's still very much in the conditioning state. It's still very much un- trying to understand what it's who you're going to be. So teenagers, they have less risk. They, um, they, which means they have less of, again, that lens that says as an adult, us sitting here saying, wow, I'm frustrated with myself that I spent so much time on social media today. What am I going to do to change it or limit this risk? Teenagers might need somebody, not all of them, of course, like I said, but young people might need somebody to walk them through those conversations and help them find those solutions, just like every other risky behavior. To think that a 13-year-old, and this this is why we're in such a weird time of history, is because largely parents and educators didn't grow up with social media themselves. So they're weirdly just, you know, looking to their 13-year-old to teach them about social media, but they're still 13. So it is still on the parent sometimes, or, or again, whomever we're talking about, myself included, to understand these risks, to go watch my TED Talk, to do what you got to do. I mean, that was just a short 18-minute version, but you can read much more on our website, where if you didn't grow up with it, you're still able to prepare your kids for it, just like you would hope to prepare them about something like alcohol. And are there, are there like actual measures to show that maybe social media has like an actual effect on things like depression and suicide in younger people? Yes, there is. There is a lot of research that shows that social media causes a decline in mental health. However, when I went into my research, I thought that that was actually all I was going to find because of everything I had read on, on social, on social media and in the news and also, um, even just headline research articles. I thought that it would be almost all always negative just based on the time on social media. But I, that was actually wrong. And what I found was that there was no consistency in the research. And some people said, like, found what we just talked about. That always gets the news, which is that it's all bad. But some people found the exact opposite, that time on social media improved the mental health of their participants. And that's a whole section of my thesis. So, well, isn't that strange? What was always consistent was when there was something in the middle, like I compare myself more, or I feel envy more, or I feel frustrated more in that time, then it was always a bad situation. So what that goes to show is it's actually a couple of things. It's less the networks themselves and more how you feel about yourself and how you're feeling at time of use. It also means that You can have two different people with dramatically different reactions to the same post by the same poster. You can also have the same person have dramatically different reactions on two different days, depending how they're feeling. And it also means, again, you've heard this before, quality over quantity. It means that if we can all have good experiences and the 100% of my participants gave me good experiences and we can all have negative experiences, It would be better for you, theoretically then, in your mental health to have three hours of good experiences over even, you know, 30 minutes of a negative experience, because that would still stick with your mental health. So it's not necessarily about how much time or time limits as much as the quality of that time and how you are feeling before you go into using. What do you specifically mean by quality of time? Like 
like prioritizing things that interest you like like you said the videos on tiktok that you like like something like that exactly so the quality of the time i mean being are you having a all those things we chatted about about are you having a good or bad time or a negative or positive experience is it making you feel good or bad about yourself during and after use so asking those questions that we talked about at the very beginning like you know just starting with three photos did i even like this one (laughs) like did i like it physically and then do i actually like it and why are they or are they not different do i know the person i'm following does that matter to me these are small questions that what they do is they make social media mindful instead of mindless even though it seems like a small question it makes me have to answer about my feed and so what i mean um in the quality of your experiences even if you're spending an hour a day there if you leave that hour and you learned something and you were entertained and you got outfit inspiration for tomorrow and you learned how to do, you learned someone taught you, you know, tips for personal branding on their social media feed. And then you got, you were happy because you saw a couple dogs and then you were like kept up with your friends and you feel like you put in some work into your social relationships all in that hour. Cause it happens that fast. I would say that would be a good quality of experience. Whereas even if it's five minutes, if you go on and you see somebody and you're thinking, oh my God, oh, they're so beautiful. Why don't I look like that? Why aren't I on vacation? Then that would be a negative quality of experience and it wouldn't matter how much time. And for a negative quality of experience, do you think that the social media companies should in part take steps to reduce that? Or do you think that's just like a personal problem? Well, Thanks for asking. <laughs> but um, like uh, in my five steps towards safe social, it kind of goes on both sides, actually, because just like every other risky behavior, this is a multi-pronged approach that requires many actors to be involved in the solution. So let's say, for example, I would, ac- I would actually encourage people to think about social media use and safe social more similarly to how we regulate alcohol than how we regulate radio, another communications medium. I would actually prefer it's in the conversation of risky behaviors like alcohol and drugs. And here's why. So if you want to help people be well before, during and after social media use, which is the mandate of my company, hashtag safe social, then you have to think about on one side, what am I doing? Yes, of course. I number step three is building the offline soft skills, making sure that I am preparing myself with the skills, before I use to handle what I'm going to see. So that's resilience. That's things like, can I bounce back um, from stress or seeing that traumatic imagery? Can I bounce back quickly, not only to survive, but to thrive? Do I know my coping strategies? Coping strategies being like, in the face of stress, what are the strategies I use to bounce back and thrive? Do I even know what stresses me out? This is stress management. So that if you've never even thought about this, you've never even literally written it down or talk to yourself or talk to somebody else about what stresses you out, how are you going to design a feed that doesn't stress you out? You need to do this kind of self-awareness work first. And so on one side, yeah, you need to work on yourself. You're probably gonna be the one that has to set your privacy settings. But then there's the other side, which is how culture and society and the companies and governments play into your experience online. Sometimes quite literally, like legally your experience. So if you think about it like alcohol, governments have said, you know, you can only get it at a certain age, you can only get it at certain stores in certain locations with certain licenses and legalities, you know, 
we should be doing that too. There's almost no regulation on social media and it's, and I'll give you some examples maybe a bit later in this, but then also there's the parents, right? So can you really be shocked that teenagers are addicted to social media when that is a very normal part of this teenage experience to compare yourself to others when there's no stopper? It's not like TV. There was commercial breaks. There's literally no stopper. It's directly tied to you. It's quantified for everybody to see, which falsely convinces you that it's an objective comparison and it's not. And of course they're addictive. So it's like, yeah, parents, you have some responsibility here. Educators, you have some responsibility too. And then we have the companies themselves. And I just talked about this quite a bit last week because of um, all these social media companies placing limitations on Donald Trump and his social media use. And that would be example of step five, holding responsible parties accountable and the companies themselves. Well, you are making money, especially Facebook, Instagram, Google, like they make their money on um, behavior modification, which means they need your attention. They literally sell advertising. So over 90% of their business is based off of you thinking, acting, or doing something differently than you would have before. Buying, liking, subscribing, whatever it is. So if they're going to make all of their money off of you being on their platforms, just like alcohol and cigarettes, for example, if that's how you're making all your money, then you have some responsibility to make sure that people can do it safely. And on cigarette packs, we require that they put warnings about what smoking can do to you. Same with alcohol. We also require like alcohol, like they contribute to mad campaigns, all this sort of stuff. And um, with social media, let's have the conversation. I don't know the, I don't know the exact prescription. Let's have the conversation about as a society about what that looks like and vote on it. Maybe, um, do, do, uh, the companies have oversight into, you know, this often goes into free speech. These are private companies. These are not government companies. If you want a government social media network, let's come up with one, but these are private companies, which means they are absolutely in their right to control who, and who is, and is not allowed access to the platform. If someone's using the platform to incite violence off the platform, you're not, you're not making this a safe space for people. You're not making it so that 13 year olds can act here safely in their physical life now. But, um, so if these are the kinds of conversations that I'm having more and more, and that I think we do need to have, because you are right. The companies do have some oversight here and well, guess what? I guess they're going to have to be part of the conversation. It's interesting. You mentioned the whole Donald Trump situation. Um, there, at least in my opinion, I think definitely think there's like a sort of conflict of interest between sort of what pays the social media company and what's actually good for us. You know, if you look at something like the endless Instagram feed, like if you continue to scroll, it just doesn't stop. You can spend like five hours on it if you wanted to. And something like TikTok where, you know, they're like sort of short bursts of really attention grabbing material and and like it only really sh like if you go into like the main for you page it only really shows you videos that other people have watched like thousands of times to sort of confirm that it's like an interesting video um but i think the the issue here i'm thinking of is like for a government mandated sort of social media platform wouldn't they have to like uh allow things like freedom of speech or like the ability to say whatever you want. 
Good question. I think that this is a very philosophical debate, and we had the same conversations, though, about TV, right? Now we're getting back into communications mediums and government-led communications mediums. So let's pretend it was like the CBC in this case, right? CBC is a national broadcaster funded by taxpayer dollars so that people can get the news and learn about things. And and if we're philosophizing, maybe if they're... I haven't actually thought about this much deeply as in a government-run social media network before this conversation, but maybe it is something like CBC, you know? Maybe it's taxpayer-funded, maybe it's... Uh, um, Maybe it's not like Facebook. I don't know. I think that you'd have to allow free speech, but they're not allowed to say whatever they want on CBC. We vote in the government who actually funds CBC. So maybe it's part of that. Like who who we vote in is is deciding what isn't is not okay on platforms like that. And you also talked about how um, there is really no off button, how there's no commercial break. Um, I've sort of, I've read the perspective of how before in like the 2000s and the 90s, you know, if you got bullied at school or if you had a bad day, you came home, it was all over. But now it's sort of this yeah. continuing rock down a mountain snowball effect thing. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, uh, it's, it's really sad, frankly, especially with the, with the endless scroll, as you suggested teenagers particularly don't have a blocker like we actually nobody has a blocker we are our brains are not good at creating artificial blockers as in oh hey flare in the brain i've been on instagram too long and a commercial break would do that for you so would the end of a program um now as you suggested with the endless scroll there's no blocker anymore there's nothing to spark you awake to say hey how long have i been here and our brains are not good at doing that themselves. And teenagers, their brains are even worse at doing it themselves. So, okay, uh, that would, might be something where we start regulating social media. Um, when you regulate social media, it's going to have to be done on a nation-by-nation -nation basis, just the same as most other laws. Um, and so what we've seen start to happen in Europe is that with the GDPR, they've started to say, like, basically, here's our rules and our privacy regulations, Facebook and Google, um, here in Europe. <laughs> we don't care where you are physically based in America, and we don't say, we don't care where you are corporate based, as you say in Dublin, because of low corporate tax rates. I don't care where you say you are. If you want to service people in Europe, these are our rules. Figure it out figure out the geolocation and maybe, you know, governments say Facebook, if you want to operate here in Canada, no endless scroll. Seems like a radical idea until it's not because it seemed also radical for them to take away the like account and now, or the public like account. And now they've done that at least where I am in Toronto and uh, depending on where your viewers are. And, uh, and it's amazing. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they wish the public like count was back. <laughs> so I know that was actually a Facebook-driven innovation, but you can see how if governments regulate it on companies, like they do every other company in every other industry, that they will have to comply if they want the advertising dollars from the millions of people in Canada, just as they do in every other industry. Figure it out. Yeah, you mentioned the the like count being removed. I, I noticed that, and then... Um, yeah, I never really saw any backlash or anything for the most part. I think it's been a positive effect on everyone. 
Well, the um, very but... beginning, it was like when it first came out, like that week, it was about um, the only people I saw upset was basically Instagram influencers and uh, content creators that make money off of their showing. But even then, it was like, okay, <laughs> two things here. One, you can still see your like count on your end of things. So if you need to sell that to an advertiser, you still can period one and two i don't think that your like your selling of yourself to an advertiser which i honestly think is fine that's personal branding it's been happening for a long time um is not does not outweigh the mental health of the masses or maybe it's just uh i want to feel better than you type of thing yeah exactly you never see the rich you know like advocating for you know for school funding i don't know like they're not the rich and with their kids in private schools are not advocating for public school funding because they're good right so if you know like it's just a metaphor but uh, if you have uh, instagram influencers who have a lot of followers and have a lot of likes of course you don't care like of course you want that to be public because it makes you look good but for everybody else for the vast majority of people who are not content creators like that it makes them feel worse. So deal with it. <laughs> but like sort of the bigger issue here is like, why do you think that there is this such big importance on like the number of likes or the number of followers or, you know, who commented on this? Well, part of actually, this is one of the basis of my, um, sorry, a base theory of my research is about social comparison theory. And essentially this theory is that people want to compare themselves as a means of understanding their identity. It's quite old. So that means that could be anything. That could be like you know, understanding things about your personality, but it could also be that I know that I'm a tall person because I look around and I see that everybody else is shorter. Therefore, that informs my identity as a tall person. That social comparison is incredibly normal. <laughs> Like that is so, so normal. And it was happening long before social media. The other thing is that that comparison later in the theory suggested that you could compare in different directions. You could compare, compare upwardly and see them as above you in some way. You could make a neutral comparison, which is I make a judgment and I deem us pretty equal or a downward comparison, almost like I'm looking down on you and I see you as worse off in some way. And there's lots of research in all directions, which is all in my thesis, if you're interested about this stuff, about does a decline in mental health correlate with seeing others as above you quite a lot? Is there a decline in mental health by seeing others as below you? Um, all that's to say, though, in terms of your question, comparison is a very normal part of the human experience. The difference before, I think, before social media was that it was rarely directly tied to you. Like, like it used, it's making us think that these are more objective comparisons and they're not. It's like making our brain think that, oh, because you're also a, I don't know, 18 year old and you're also in my city and you look kind of similar, that, that this is an objective comparison. And then God forbid I add the numbers. And I think, and I add numbers about your likes you get this many likes and I get this many likes, that was also going to convince me that it's an objective comparison, but it's not. It's not objective. How could it ever be objective? It's literally you, yourself, and an infinite amount of variables that go into why somebody gets, including an algorithm, 
which might determine why somebody gets 20 likes and you get 200 or something. I don't know. So there's all that going on too. And what do you feel about like this, this sort of idea that you're supposed to be like 24 seven available to everyone else. And if someone messages you, then you have to reply in like, like an hour. Like, do you think that because of the fact that we're, expected to always be available to every single person that messages us or or sends us a funny picture like do you think that's sort of draining yeah it could be draining but i'm not for that at all i'm not you gosh you do not need to answer people when they decide they want to be answered too (laughs) like like it's like asynchronous communication it's like a call unexpected phone call (laughs) it to me is just bonkers my that does not happen with any of my friends and or any of my followers. And if they have a problem with that, well, then we probably won't be friends for a very long time, which is the honest truth because I have a lot going on in my life. I run two organizations and I have things in, in my real life, as in, in my IRL that are important to me, friends and family and my fiance and whatever it is, like watching movies makes me really happy, like critiquing film. I like that. I do that for fun. I'm not doing that on social media. And that's just kind of like, I guess, self-care. There's just so many things that need to happen to make your life good that God forbid you decided you messaged me at 3.37 PM that, that I need to change everything I'm doing in order to give you a response? No. So you might get a response from me a day later. That is not, does not reflect the importance of you in my life. It probably more likely reflects what I was doing in my RL, (laughs) like as in my real life. (laughs) So you can't possibly know what people are doing on the other end of the screen. And so on one side, you now know how I look at it. But I would also say that when you are the sender of the message, because I do for sure, of course, I reply whenever I can. Do I expect them, though, to respond to me right away? No, I don't. And that's where you can't have the double standard. You can't be like, I'm going to respond whenever I want. But then if somebody has seen it and hasn't responded yet, that you're all upset. Because that's not fair to them either. And could you talk a bit more about sort of this sort of highlight reel phenomenon about how um, you kind of only really see the best parts of someone's life on social media? Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes you sort of believe that you know that's how their life is all the time and and is this sort of something that's new with social media like or is it something that's that we sort of had for a long time i guess this part is probably been around since the beginning of social media because it's just about that public image that we put out like there put out there um before social media i'd say that most people had no version of a public image, you know? Like most people, their the extent of their public image or personal brand or we'll call it what you want, honestly, was like who they saw at work and who they saw at home. And that was pretty much it. Grocery store clerk isn't gonna remember them and think about their image, right? So, so people don't really have to think about that. But then once it happens where we do, of course people are only gonna put up the best and brightest moments. And that's the highlight reel, a collection of the best and brightest moments. I suppose if you want to think about a version of it before social media, maybe it's like the photos you put up in your cubicle at your office. Of course, you're going to put up the nicest photos or the ones that make you happy or the best parts of your life 
for everybody to see. Now that's like social media. So what it can do is trick the brain though, because you are there as yourself in your behind the scenes life, comparing to someone else's highlight reel. And you're not going to see their behind the scenes. You're not going to see all the other moments that got to them posting that one thing. I literally just posted a photo today of my new personal branding visual design. And I decided on in 2021 on social media, I was going to do more of what I do in my daily life. I'm just going to teach more. I'm going to actually show more of the behind the scenes and my thinking and how I do, how I do things instead of just saying like, oh, I'm here at this place or I'm doing this thing. So I was like, okay, do I just show the new brand or do I actually show a little bit of the kind of work that we do that I did with a designer, the kind of thinking that goes into it, even though you're, I'm not going to like, I didn't videotape it or something like that. I want people to know that, no, don't compare to this. Start the process, the, like do the process. And this is the outcome of the process compared to step one and do that. So, I mean, it's just one example. I'm just like seeing it, which is what I'm, which is why I'm thinking about it. But we struggle with insecurity because we compare our behind the scenes with everyone else's highlight reels. And we just need to remind ourselves constantly that that is a highlight reel, that they clearly, for some reason, thought this is one of their best and brightest moments. So, yeah. And you mentioned your company. Could you like speak a bit, a bit about like what you do at Safe Social? So I actually have, um, my, my main gig in my life is I own a company called skills camp, which is actually a soft skills training company. And that's uh, in person and more recently, of course, online soft skills training and things like resilience, stress management, empathy, that sort of stuff. And when the pandemic hit, that took a bit of a break <laughs> because in-person training was not happening. And so that actually fortunately gave me the time to finally turn hashtag safe social into its own organization. Because the truth is I've been doing this research um, and and both professionally and academically since about 2015. Um, maybe even before actually. Yeah. No, I think about 2015 when I started, when I worked at Ryerson University in Toronto and I was um, doing professional research into digital well-being as in what is the result of our students using social media and that sort of jazz. So it was like um, effects on mental health. Then because I had been doing that research as a staff member at Ryerson, I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to be doing this anyways. I may as well get a degree out of it. And that is actually what prompted me to go get my master's. And so then I started the academic side, which has always been catching up with my professional life. So then I started my master's part time. In my first year of the master's is when the TED talk came out. And the weird thing and the funny thing though, is that even though I wasn't done the formal research part, the TED talk is based on all my professional research, like research conducted as a professional <laughs> and that work. And so then that kind of snowballed. So since some um, 2017, the TED talk came out since then, I've been going all over the world and teaching people what I know about social media's impact on mental health. What are the risks? What should we watch out for? What's different right now? Um, and how can we practice safe social? Um, but then I would ha end a talk and maybe a parent would come up and say something like, yeah, this seems important. And I'm because I succeeded. <laughs> like, this is important. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And they're like, well, do you have a book or something? Or like, 
is there downloads or is there lesson plan or something? I want to do this with my class. And I'm like, oh, you should be able to get that from me. And that's kind of uh, where the idea for hashtag safe social, the organization came from. And so finally, March of last year, I was able to get that time that I needed. And so now fast forward to today and hashtag safe social is uh, basically a socially driven organization about the movement of practicing safe social. And our mission is to do what we're doing right now, teach people how they can get the benefits of social media with less risk and ultimately just help them be well before, during and after social media use. So that goes through our five, my five steps towards safe social. We provide lesson plans. We provide um, lots of information, assessments, activities, all for free on the website. So it's more like a, think of it like a nonprofit. And are you finding it interesting? Sort of, is there like an increase in people that want to sort of have a healthy relationship with social media? Yes, absolutely. I've been noticing an increase over the last five years. And I like to think that that's in part, in a small part, due to my work, because I still find like the fact that I'm talking about step five these last two weeks is so rare. Like I'm normally very much on step one, which is building awareness and understanding. And that's because I find myself in conversations most often where I'm just still telling people, hey, there are risks here and here's what they are. I don't even get to barely get to getting very deep into the steps two to five. And that's okay. That's the part of history that we're at. Like the TED Talk, for example, is is a good example of step one building awareness and understanding. If you watch that TED talk, you will understand more about potential risks of using social media and maybe even a few steps about what you can do to be be well there. Um, and so I do spend a lot of time there. Um, but because of that, I have, because of that awareness, again, I like to think it's in part due to my work, but lots of people all over the world are interested in this and just seeing. That's the thing is like, I love research like it's like saying I love my own research. I do. I actually like. Oh, I wouldn't dedicate my life to understanding it, but I do. I appreciate research that is in response to a phenomenon that's out there. That's like, hey, that's what research is. Like, there's this thing that is happening. We should look into this. And that was what my research was. There's different kinds of research, but and and so that being now kind of you know a couple years old is like is leading this conversation. Um, which is why I think more people become aware they want to go to the next step, which is what can I do? And I think that that's why I'm getting more like a uh, interaction recently, if you will. Well, thank you, Bailey, for coming on the podcast. It was, it was really okay. great talking to you and learning more about sort of how to navigate sort of the, the world that we're in right now. Um, is there anything you want to say or um, sort of shout out or plug? Sure. Well, if, if you're listening and you're interested in practicing safe social, you can go to safesocialmedia.co and we're also at safesocialmedia.co on Instagram, which is hopefully the good part of social media. And I'm at Bailey Parnell on everything, which is also hopefully the good part of social media. So thank you for having me.